Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. Imagine for a moment that you're exploring some lost Egyptian necropolis. The hallway, it's close and dark. The flames of your torch flicker upon hieroglyphics that have not seen the sun for thousands of years. Cobwebs hang from the walls. Statues of old gods and ancient kings stare down at you from above. The dusty stone crunches beneath your feet, and you think you feel something beneath you. Was that a snake? Why does it have to be snakes? You walk carefully. The stone eyes of the pharaohs and the gods gaze upon you. Eventually, you make it through a narrow door and into a burial chamber. Before you lies a sarcophagus, a stone capsule, holding the dead leader of an ancient kingdom. It is the body of a pharaoh who held the power of life and death in both of his hands, uttered decrees obeyed by millions, saw his enemies crush beneath the wheels of his chariot. He lies before you. What do you do? Do you just appreciate the moment with the pharaoh? Do you contemplate the great breadths of the history before you? Do you contact a university or a museum so that the body in the tomb can be examined by experts and professionals? Or... Do you crack open the sarcophagus, grind up the dead guy, rub his mummy dust all over your body, and then use other parts of the mummy dust as art supplies? For many years, a lot of people chose option three. Mummies, actual, real, human corpses, were popular as medicine and paint in Europe beginning in the 1500s. Europeans couldn't get enough of dried-out Egyptian corpses, and bits of former kings and queens and aristocrats were sold as medicine and paint. And we don't know exactly why ground-up mummy became a staple of apothecary shops. We don't know who the Johnny Appleseed of mummy dust was. But we do know that it was definitely a thing, and that the dusty bones of the pharaohs, they were said to remedy just about Everything, really. It was often applied topically or ingested, and sometimes even snorted. Regardless of the means of ingestion, though, ground-up ancient Egyptian mummy dust, it would cure what ailed you. In an article about this whole topic, uh, writing in Art and Society, historian Philip McCote notes that the healing power of mummy was championed by some fairly well-known luminaries. Quote, Its advocates include some of the most distinguished physicians and scientists of the time, so, for example, Francis Bacon considered that mummy hath great force in the staunching of blood, and Robert Boyle claimed that it was one of the most useful medicines commended and given by our physicians for falls and bruises. Shakespeare's son-in-law, the physician John Hall, treated a case of epilepsy by burning a mixture of aromatic resin benzoic, powdered mummy, black pitch, and juice of rue, with the resultant fumes being inhaled by a patient as a soporific. Reputedly, Francois I of France always carried a pouch or purse containing a mixture of mumia and pulverized rhubarb, fearing no accident if he had but a little of that by him, to treat any ailment from headaches and bruises to stomach complaints and broken bones. Catherine de' Medici even sent her chaplain to Egypt in 1549 to procure some. Unquote. And there is a sort of pre-scientific logic to this. Humans have consumed other humans since time immemorial, and, and cannibalism almost always has some kind of ritualistic and spiritual dimension to it. Consuming someone else is usually done to give the consumer power. 
suffusing them with the imagined life energy of the person that they are eating or using as an ointment or snorting. In the Roman Empire, for instance, gladiator blood was sought to be an epilepsy treatment. And this is really grim, but that is an idea that continues even today. In Tanzania, for instance, there is the persistent belief that albinos are magical and that the body parts of people with albinism can be used in various magical or ritualistic fashions, often having to do with healing. And this has led to some truly, truly horrific human rights abuses. As gross as eating, snorting, or topically applying mummy powder might sound, and it is kind of weird, at least those guys had been good and dead for a good long time. Uh, the point is, though, that beliefs in eating or consuming the dead in some fashion to gain strength, they've been around for a while. And no less than Leonardo da Vinci said, quote, We preserve our life with the death of others. In a dead thing, insensate life remains, which... When it is reunited with the stomachs of the living, regains sensitive and intellectual life. Unquote. No word on whether or not Leonardo ever went all cannibal. Uh, I hope not. And there's also another different kind of weirder theory about why people got into consuming mummy dust starting in the 1500s. It could all have been a big, wacky misunderstanding. Bitumen was a common medication in the ancient Middle East, and the Persian word for bitumen is mumia. That kind of sounds like mummy. And some folks might have gotten the wrong idea, misinterpreting mumia to mean mummy, because they sound alike. And then this wacky linguistic misunderstanding led to a whole bunch of crazy corpse consumption. Um, I saw this idea pop up in a few places in a few articles, and it seems only mildly persuasive, uh, given that humans haven't needed much prompting or misunderstanding to ritualistically consume each other in the past. Uh, I am not saying that this theory is wrong. I am not an expert on this, and I can't prove that it is. But I think it's much more likely that medicinal mummy dust is just one more thing in a long line of people. People who eat people. Did ingesting mummy dust or slathering it all over you actually do anything for you? No. No, it did not. But people ascribe all kinds of healing power to bunk medicine, even today. The placebo effect is a powerful thing indeed. So, that is one use of ground-up mummies. The other big popular use of ground-up mummies was art supplies. Mummy brown, a popular paint color. It was the color of dried-out, desiccated corpses. And the reason mummy brown was the color of dried-out, desiccated corpses was that it was literally made out of dried-out, desiccated corpses. Now, not all mummy brown was made of people, mind you. Some of it was also made of dead cats. Mummy cats. The Egyptians were into that. But, you know, putting dead cat in your paint. Still weird. It probably is the most off-putting of paint pigments, honestly. And even Indian yellow, a pigment made out of cow urine, that's a distant second. That's not nearly as, you know, weird as using your ancestors for paint. This was a popular paint color starting with the pre-Raphaelites, and it is a very, very rich brown, somewhat brighter than burnt umber, and there's a great anecdote about it. Edward Burne Jones, he was an artist from the 1800s who did a lot of Arthurian stuff. You'd probably recognize his work. 
he had some Mummy Brown in his studio, and he thought the name was just a bit of marketing jargon, that it was named because the brown was so similar to the color of mummies. And when this artist found out that Mummy Brown was literally exactly what it said on the tin, he was absolutely horrified. Here's how his wife described the artist, realizing that he had chunks of corpse hanging out in his work environment. Quote, Edward scornfully rejected the idea of the pigment having anything to do with a mummy, said the name must be only borrowed to describe a particular shade of brown, but when assured that it was actually compounded of real mummy, he left at once, hastened to the studio, and returned with the only tube he had, insisting on our giving it a decent burial there and then. So, a hole was bored in green grass at our feet, and we all watched it put safely in, and a spot was marked by one of the girls planting a daisy root above it. Unquote. That's actually kind of touching. Good on you, Edward Byrne Jones. By the way, if mummy curses were real, you'd have all kinds of paintings, starting with the pre-Raphaelites, that pulsated with ancient necrotic curse energy that are haunted by vengeful pharaohs, angry that their bones and skin had been bound up and used as heart supplies. And that sounds weird, and it also sounds like it would make an awesome horror movie. Somebody make that. I'd watch it. And given patterns of human migration from the ancient Middle East to Europe, there is a significant non-zero chance that at some point an artist used bits of their own ancestor as a material component in a work of art. Or, even more gruesomely, there is also a chance that someone, when consuming some medicine that used mummy dust as an ingredient, swallowed bits of a far-back family member. Now, a problem with this whole system of using mummies as a commodity in medicine or art is that ancient mummies are a non-renewable resource. Uh, ancient Egypt it lasted for a long time. A really, really long time. There's more time between Cleopatra and the first Egyptian dynasties than there is between her and 2015. And that's a whole lot of mummy history to work with. But there were only so many kings, queens, and aristocrats getting mummified. Eventually, the supply would not be able to satisfy the demand. So, lots of people want mummy powder or mummy paint. What do you do? A solution? Fake mummies. Counterfeit mummies. How do you make a counterfeit mummy? Well, you take a recently dead person, you leave them out in the sun to dry out, maybe rub them down with bitumen, uh, grind them up, and then voila! 100% genuine fake Egyptian mummy that you could hawk as the European equivalent of a traveling medicine show. Most counterfeit mummies did go into medicine. The pigment mummy brown, that was a bit harder to fake. The paint, by the way, was known for being very easy to work with. It apparently landed on a brush very, very well, and while you were painting, it was great. But it faded easily, and it was prone to cracking after it dried. So it didn't really stand the test of time. Ironically, given that mummies were made to stand the test of time. Nonetheless, it was still popular, and Mummy Brown remained available for painters until the early 20th century. Uh, Ground-up mummies and mummy parts also hung around until the 20th century, though as oddities and curiosity shops, uh, not so much as medicine that you could, you know, ingest or snort or whatnot. 
Uh, today you can get an imitation of the color that was made from ground-up bones and flesh, but modern versions of mummy brown, they're made of calcium carbonate, iron oxide, kaolin, and clay silica. It looks just like that distinctive bright umber, so evocative of ancient tombs and long-dead kings, but it contains 100% less actual dead people. Also, attitudes about how we treat mummies and regard mummies, they have changed pretty dramatically. Uh, Oto over a year ago, I went to a mummy exhibition at the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry, and I was struck by how respectful the whole thing was to the human beings who were literally on display. At every step, the exhibit went out of its way to emphasize the humanity of the mummies that we saw, and to try to tell their life stories and emphasize what we could learn from their remains, not just dwell on the gruesome nature of their corpses. It was honestly a little touchy-feely. Uh, part of me still wanted to revel in how gross and weird mummies are, but I got where the exhibit was coming from. Using mummies as medicine or as paint can only really happen if we deny their humanity at least a little, if we literally reduce the human body to an object. But it's worth noting that every single mummy that got ground up, turned into medicine, turned into paint, turned into some attraction or amusement, was a human being that walked the earth, maybe one of our ancestors, many, 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 many years ago. Interesting times. We are recorded at the studios of Portland's X-Ray FM 91.1 and 107.1 in beautiful Portland, Oregon. We are engineered by Arthur Rosado. I am not a pharaoh with piles of gold available to me. Wish I was. Nope. Instead, we are supported by crowdfunding. Uh, if you want to support the podcast, go to interestingtimespodcast.com, click on the support link, and do that. Uh, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash interestingtimeswithjoestreckert. I'm at Streckert on Twitter. We are on iTunes and Stitcher. Go to iTunes, give us a rating, give us a review. That is highly helpful and helps people discover the show. Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye.